Well, thanks for that reading, John. Uh, good evening. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, and we're continuing uh, this series through Colossians over this fourth term, and uh, we've come to this section tonight, which is really the heart of the whole letter. It's perhaps the central passage in terms of the themes and particularly what Paul has to say about Christ and all that he's achieved. So um, please pray with me and we'll ask God to help us as we um, come to look at this passage together and wrestle with it. Uh, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather together this evening. Uh, we thank you for your word to us that you've revealed yourself through it and ultimately through the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we acknowledge that your word is powerful, that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And we pray tonight that you might uh, encourage us, that you might challenge us where needed, that we may uh, hear your voice clearly in your word and respond in clarity, in repentance and faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you saw the story this week in the news about the British adventurer Ross Edgeley. Um, he landed a week ago in the Kent town of Margate in Britain's southeast, 157 days after he left. Uh, he set off on June the 1st, but he's the first man to complete the 2,800-kilometer circumnavigation of Great Britain, swimming unassisted the whole way. 157 days. The 33-year-old Briton uh, first took to the water in June 1 this year, and his days consisted of two six-hour swims, and then he would have rests on a boat in between. And they'd use their GPS, and they'd go back to the position that exactly where he finished swimming, so he'd start from that point. He didn't gain anything as he got onto the boat each time. And on many days, he covered enough distance to do the swim across the English Channel. That was his standard day. Uh, along the way, he battled strong tides and currents, icy waters off the, coast, uh, off the coast of Scotland, storms with three-metre waves, and numerous jellyfish stings. He said, um, leading basically with your head swimming along, he was getting stung on his face because he had this thick wetsuit covering the rest of his body. Um, but there were lots of other uh, things to cope with physically. Uh, such a prolonged and sustained period in the water saw his hands and his feet... Um, be affected by what people call trench foot. It's effectively the skin rotting because it's so exposed to the elements day after day. And the constant submersion in the water uh, left him struggling to eat and swallow and to speak with people because of the effect of the salt on his throat. And worst, he argued, was the um, rhino neck, as he called it, all this chafing on the back of his neck from his wetsuit, despite them applying three to four... Um, kilos of Vaseline over the entirety of the swim and using rolls of gaffer tape, he still had this effect uh, of um, this burning sensation on his neck the whole time. Severe cold of the water was something else to deal with. It was 15 degrees to 20 degrees Celsius as he swam around. And yes, that's the warmest period around Great Britain. <laughs> and you've got to ask the question, what kept him going? How did he sustain this for 157 days? Well, he speaks about it this way. He said that he was burning 15,000 calories a day, over half a million in the entirety of the swim, and he likened his endeavour to a giant eating competition with a little bit of swimming in between. You see, he would get out after every six-hour swim and he'd basically have a full fry-up breakfast with several pieces of toast and three or four eggs and the whole lot. Sometimes he'd swap it for porridge or noodles. 
He'd eat 24 hours of food every 12 hours just to sustain himself. And he said it was great. He could basically eat anything he wanted. He was just burning it off as he swam. Sometimes he'd get out and just eat two Domino's pizzas by himself and then go into some burgers and ice cream. What a guy. Well, I don't know. <laughs> With that kind of sustaining uh, through the food that he was given, he did have a dietitian supposedly helping him. But as we come to this section um, this evening in Colossians chapter 2, uh, we need to consider how we might be strengthened, not to keep going physically as he needed to, but to keep going spiritually. What's going to sustain us in the long haul over a lifetime of spiritually walking with Christ? So our big question this evening that we're going to consider from Colossians chapter 2 is this. How can Christians stand firm in their faith throughout their life? Uh, we need to be strengthened for the long haul. So how can Christians stand firm in their faith? And I think Paul's got two answers for that question in our passage. Um, so we'll come to the first of those tonight. First answer to that question is this. By continuing as they started. Christians will stand firm if they continue as they started. Have a look how Paul begins again from verses 6 to 8. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So notice in verse 6, um, because the Colossians had received Jesus as Lord, because their faith was founded on him, they were now to continue to live their lives in him, or literally to walk in him. And that phrase, uh, walk in Christ, or our uh, walk as a believer, is something that's used throughout the New Testament and it speaks about our daily conduct, that um, as we grow and move along in life, we need to continue to walk closely with Christ. And that's Paul's argument here. Um, in this context, it's about continuing to believe the truth about Jesus, not wavering from their beliefs at any point. And notice in verse 7 that like a tree with deep roots in rich soil, believers have been firmly rooted in Christ, we're told. And so they're not to move to anything else. They are to stay founded on him. And notice that um, that phrase there is actually past tense, uh, perfect tense rather. They have been firmly rooted. It took place at the moment of salvation when a person places their trust in Jesus. From that moment, they are right with God. Their sins are dealt with. And from that point on, they're to be built up as well. Notice that we don't stay stagnant or static, but in verse 7, we're to be built up in Jesus. So Christ is not only the source of our salvation when we turn to him in repentance and faith, but he's also the source of our ongoing growth, our ongoing fruit in our lives as believers. So this is a continuing process by which we're told we're strengthened in the faith. And ultimately, that, that strengthening, that establishing in the faith is God's work in your life if you've come to faith in Jesus. God at work in you through his Holy Spirit, uh, changing you, strengthening you, making you more like your Savior. And the result should be in verse 7 that you're just overflowing with thankfulness. I think here Paul is really saying that the circle completes at this point. God has poured out so many blessings on us in Christ. And then ultimately, we are so thankful for what we've received in Jesus 
that we turn that back to him in praise and adoration. We're so thankful for what we have in Jesus. This is the response to God's work in our lives. And all of this growth, all of this standing firm in our faith in Jesus is in sharp contrast in verses 6 and 7 to what Paul says in verse 8. Because notice he's saying all this because he's worried that they're going to be diverted, that they're going to stop solely trusting in Jesus, that they're going to run off to empty philosophies. Notice again, verse 8, that you'll become captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And so Paul's concerned that they're going to give way to false thinking, that they'll be diverted. Now, when we hear the word philosophy, it's not a negative word. Um, many people study it, obviously. Philosophy is just made up of two Greek words, philio and sophia. So it means love of wisdom. So it's about love of wisdom, pursuit of wisdom. That's what philosophy is about. But notice here that this philosophy is negative because Paul puts two adjectives that are quite negative before it. He talks about this being hollow and deceptive philosophy. So he's referring to worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that rejects Jesus as Lord or wants to add other things to Jesus. Say, so, well, you've got Jesus, but you need these other bits. And so there's a concern here that the Colossians will fall into this. They had their own particular deceptions in the first century that they were dealing with. And although Paul doesn't name the isms, um, we can actually work them out. Next week, we're going to see in detail from verse 16 onwards um, that there's a whole series of things that they're grappling with. For starters, in verses 16 and 17 that will follow, there's a lot of legalism. There is the Jewish influence in the church that, hey, you've got Jesus, but you've got to meet these other laws uh, from the Jewish culture. Uh, they were also dealing with mysticism. So we'll see next week that uh, there was worship of angels and other heavenly beings. And so they were adding that to Christ. There was also asceticism. That is where you treat your body harshly as a way of growing closer to God. So by denying yourself, you know, either starving yourself or doing hard things, that this somehow was getting you closer to God. This asceticism is also something that we'll see next week. But I think what we've already seen the last couple of weeks is there was this group of teachers, it seems, coming into the church saying, look, you haven't got everything in Jesus. Let us give you a bit more. If you want true fullness in Christ then we've got some special extra knowledge that we can give you. It's like an early form of Gnosticism, whereas there's this special knowledge that you've yet to receive and we can offer it to you. And that's why Paul is so adamant as he keeps working through this letter that you have everything you need in Jesus. One, because he is fully God, and so there's nothing more that can be added. And secondly, you have fullness in Christ, that if you've placed your faith in him, you're not missing out on anything. And so that is the theme that runs through the book. But notice in verse 8 that such deceptive philosophy that he's worried the Colossians will be drawn to is really depends on two things. He says, well, what sits under deceptive philosophies is firstly human traditions and secondly, elemental spiritual forces. So let's take those in turn. So firstly, human tradition. As I mentioned already, the Jews had many traditions. And of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the nation added lots of customs and rituals as time went on. And it became difficult for the average Jewish person because what they were hearing from their teachers week by week at the synagogue or elsewhere was not just the Old Testament, which they were seeking to obey, but there was all this long list of human traditions that had been added. And after a while, it becomes hard for the person to distinguish which is actually God's word and what is just a man-made rule that is being forced upon me. And so... Jesus often butted heads with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders on this very point as he ministered. 
Have a look at one example with me, Mark 7, it will come up on the screen. Um, Here's an interaction between Jesus and some of the religious leaders. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? I.e., why won't they do all the traditions we're telling them to do? Jesus answers, verse 8, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So this was a great struggle for the Jewish people. But it wasn't just for the Jews. Um, At different points in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul both speak about Gentiles being handed down futile traditions from their forefathers that led them away from God's grace in Christ. Well, that's the human tradition part. What about the other underpinning uh, problem to these false philosophies? Well, Paul says it's elemental spiritual forces in verse 8. Here's another source. Uh, These elemental spiritual forces um, really referring to um, the people's fixation, especially at that time, um, with worship of the sun and the planets. Um, They, uh, I guess, boiled it down more and more to a refined sort of thinking, if you like, which we would probably call astrology today. The influence of such kind of beliefs produced a lot of fatalism in people. They saw their destiny as being determined by the movement of the planets or some other pagan worship of things that God had created in his universe rather than worshipping God the creator. So Paul's warning the Colossians to avoid such superstitious thinking that flows into these wrong philosophies. Well, let's apply all of that to ourselves today. How would you think about that for yourself today? Well, I think we've got to realise that the deceptive philosophies in our world have only multiplied over the last 2,000 years. If there were lots in the first century, uh, we can't name them all today. We've added so many more. But let's just focus on a couple of things that Paul's raising in terms of uh, the basis of these things. Let's think about this issue of human traditions for a moment. Because I think so often when we think about deceptive philosophies, we think about various isms that are out there. And if we're a believer or we've come to know about the Christian faith, then we can be sure sometimes in our mind that that's wrong. We know that that's a thing out there. But what if the problem is actually in here? What if it's human traditions that grow up within the Christian church? that are actually not founded on God's word, the Bible, that might draw us away from our complete trust in Jesus and the grace that we receive in him. I think this can happen a lot and has happened a lot down through the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. Traditions often lead to legalism because this is the default setting of the human heart. We, We like rules, or at least we like applying them to other people making them conform to the things that we would like them to do, whatever system we've come up with. I think I've said a few times before that um, the church in Australia, even the evangelical Protestant church, was quite legalistic post-World War II. In the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s, um, even evangelical churches could seem to focus so much on what a Christian shouldn't do, how to grow in godliness, that the gospel of grace could be lost. And so my parents grew up in an evangelical church in Sydney, and I was there in the first few years of my life. But it was a church just like this. Um, They did preach the gospel, um, but the message that you heard the most was a Christian is defined as the things they don't do. You know, a Christian doesn't drink, a Christian doesn't smoke, 
A Christian doesn't go to the theatre or the cinema. A Christian must wear um, formal clothes to church. They can't go casual. A Christian shouldn't play cards. And on and on the list went. And there's a great danger as you hear those things all the time that your focus on the grace in Christ is lost amidst all the rules for living. And the problem with all those rules, as much as they were well-meant, they were seeking to sort of provide a hedge that would protect people from going into sin, was that those things weren't actually commanded in the Bible. You won't find a verse in the Bible that says you can't dance or you can't go to the cinema or you have to wear a suit and tie to church or um, even that you can't smoke. I'm not suggesting it would be good for you, but um, there's not a, a rule given to us by God. And on the issue of alcohol, the clear instruction in the Bible over and over is not to get drunk. It's about self-control, not about never touching alcohol. Now, these Christian traditions, they still linger today. And they've left lots of believers with a false guilt. They think they've somehow failed because they haven't met this standard of added human rules, which God hasn't actually placed upon their conscience. Just people have. And of course, it confuses the gospel for non-believers. The impression is often given that Christians are people that just do lots of things or don't do lots of things. They have a, a clear set of rules rather than Christians are just sinners who have found a wonderful saviour, who know about God's grace shown to them, the forgiveness that is in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. If we come to faith in Jesus, it will lead to new living. We will start to live a godly life, but not because somebody gives us a list of rules that are outside the Bible, but because, Titus 2.11, God's grace teaches us to say no to our ungodliness, to all ungodliness, you see, it's the gospel that will teach us as we respond to God's grace, as we live in the light of it, then we will grow to be more like our Savior. We will put off old ways, certainly. But we need to be so careful that we don't create the impression that we're saved by what we do. Human traditions can distort the gospel and they can lead fellow believers astray. What about the second problem that Paul highlights? The elemental spiritual forces... We might put it in the big bucket today of the New Age movement. Um, it's been a big force, I think, in Australia and many Western countries for the last few decades. And certainly it's a big thing, whether it's somebody's aura being read or crystals or astrology or there's 101 things these days. Let me just hone in on one example in terms of astrology for a moment. You know, it's astrology as we know it now, linking the planets to the 12 zodiac signs, was something developed in the Middle East and in ancient Greece, in the five centuries before Christ was born. But it's got a long history, if you like. Um, but um, you would be aware if you read a magazine or you look at the newspaper or you go into online publications that there are constantly still horoscopes presented for you day after day, week after week, year after year. And I myself always wonder, why do they even print this stuff? Because who reads this? Well, 25% of adults in Western countries like Australia believe in horoscopes. That's why they keep printing them. Surveys show that many um, adults lead their lives around the things they read in such horoscopes. In fact, a recent survey in Britain of university students, university students only, found that 70% of them read a horoscopes column once a month and 51% of them valued its advice. 
In addition, nearly half confessed to finding out their partner's or potential partner's sign so that they could manage their relationship better. And 35% had read their predictions for the year ahead. I find those stats astounding, but I don't think we should be surprised in the sense that it's just part of a wider movement within our nation and many countries to reject God's sovereignty and his power and control of our lives and running to deceitful deceptions, things that we hold on to, fleeing to these empty things. See, the Apostle Paul talks about these deceptions coming from uh, demonic forces, from deceiving spirits elsewhere in the New Testament. But sadly, many people are captive to those today. Whether you see them as a nothing, or whether you see them that have potential power in a person's life, if they have any power, it's empowered by evil forces which are not going to point people towards Jesus. So I guess I want to challenge you tonight. If there is anyone here that claims that they're a follower of Jesus, that they're a Christian, but then they're mixing in some sort of new age practice with their Christian belief, to stop it. You're not honouring Christ by doing that. You are dragging yourself away from the gospel of grace. You're confusing your thinking and leading to a place where you are being deceived. We need to reject those things clearly and say to people what they are. And that brings us to a second answer to our question tonight. Second answer to our question. How can Christians continue to stand firm in their faith? Well, not only firstly do we need to continue as we've started, but secondly, we need to fully grasp what we have in Christ. We need to grasp what we have already in Jesus. Have a look again at verses 9 to 12 as Paul goes on. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So firstly here in verse 9, Paul wants to say that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. It's not as if when he takes on our human form and comes to earth and is born as a baby that he somehow loses some of his divinity, that he's not fully God anymore because he's had to take on our flesh and blood. Paul wants to say, no way. God is always has his fullness in his Son. The eternal Son is always fully divine. And notice too that that divine nature lives or literally dwells in Jesus. It's in the present tense here. It makes it clear that it's a continuous thing. It continually abides with Jesus. And so in verse 10, as a result, he has to be head over every power and authority. There's nothing above him, including the spiritual realm. He is in charge of all things. And therefore, if Jesus is fully God and has all power and rule, then he can give fullness to all those that trust in, trust in him. Any Christian who's come to faith in Christ lacks nothing spiritually. There's nothing more that we need. There's nothing more we need to be waiting for to be added to us. But I guess the question then that comes up in this section of Colossians is, well, how is it that Jesus can offer us such fullness? How does he achieve all this for us that we can receive all that we'll ever need spiritually in him? Well, really, that's what Paul unpacks in the remainder of the passage from verses 11 to 15. 
And he says it really in two main points. Firstly, in verses 11 to 13, he says, We have this fullness in Christ because we've been given new life in him. We've been given new life. And so Paul illustrates this principle by using the twin themes here, did you notice, of circumcision and baptism. So let's take them in turn. So firstly, circumcision. Every Jewish male child is circumcised on the eighth day to make them a part of the covenant nation, God's people, Israel. It's a sign that showed that they belong. But it was never just a physical sign. It was meant to point to something symbolically. Even from the very beginning in the law of Moses, uh, it was symbolically meant to illustrate the desperate need of humanity to have a new heart. And so notice in our passage, he talks about circumcision of the heart. What Paul's getting at there is an inward experience of purification that we receive simply by faith, simply by trusting in Jesus. And so through that faith, we have full forgiveness of our sins. God has broken the rule of our sinful nature. Now, it's not that we're without sin this side of heaven, that we won't continue to struggle, but its power over our life has been broken that moment that we trust in Christ. And that's why Paul can say elsewhere in that famous verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, about the new creation. That if we're in Christ, anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone. And Paul continues this idea of new life in Jesus in the second theme of baptism. The idea here is that we share in the benefits of Christ's death, his burial and resurrection. That's what's symbolized when somebody gets baptized here or at the beach or wherever it might be, symbolizing the death to the old life, burial, resurrection to new life. Simply an external symbol of that inward change that has taken place again by faith. And so we're freed from condemnation because of Jesus. We're raised spiritually at our conversion. We're given new life through the Holy Spirit. And so Paul gets down to a summary of all of this in verse 13. Have a look at that with me. Verse 13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. There is God's power to bring a person who is dead in their sin, facing eternal separation from God, and he can bring that dead bunch of bones, as it were, to life. It's his great act of power that he can transfer somebody from eternal death to eternal life. What's it like to experience I don't know if you've heard the story of Ingrid Bentoncourt. Um, She was a candidate for the presidential elections in Colombia back in 2002. Um, She was part of a party that was very anti the rebel forces that controlled big swathes of the country. She'd been quite outspoken um, about the rebel group known as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And while she was campaigning, she was insistent that she would go into their controlled areas because it's such an oppressed, poor part of the country. She wanted them to hear the message of freedom and change that could come if they would place their trust in the government rather than following these rebels. But people said to her, look, you've made these statements publicly. If you enter that area, you are a target. You'll be kidnapped as many people were being and we're not going to see you again. Don't go into those areas. No, no, she insisted, I have to go and speak to these people. And even at one point where she couldn't get to her next destination by helicopter as planned, and she decided that she would go by car, she made a big mistake. Of course, they set up roadblocks, she was kidnapped and captured. No one heard of her for six years. 
No one knew of her whereabouts. They assumed she was dead or the sentence of death was hanging over her. She was being held in a remote jungle area. Um, she was isolated. She was often beaten. She was always underfed. She spent a lot of the time with a gun placed in her temple. She felt the sentence of death just hovering over her the whole time. It had quite an impact on her. But a miracle happened in July of 2008. Um, it's the only time the Colombian government has pulled off a hugely successful rescue operation like this. But they managed to get 14 people out, including her, that were being held by the rebels. People were just dumbfounded that she appeared back in the capital alive. Nobody went into the rebel area and came out again after they were captured. And so this miracle of being transferred from certain death to new life, she saw in her own experience. Now, there are many stories, aren't there, of these incredible rescues um, down through history. But I want to say that every single one of them, including hers, is just a small shadow of the amazing rescue that just outdoes all of these by far in God saving a sinner through his grace in Christ. We don't see ourselves clearly enough often of what we were dead in our sin, as Paul talks about, but now to be made alive in Christ, that God can intervene in our life and bring new purpose and direction where there was none. God can make us alive in Christ. And so Paul's argument as he unpacks all of this is to say, well, why would you turn anywhere else? Why would you need anything else if you have all this in Christ and you have new life in him? No one can produce this for you except for Jesus. But secondly, in verses 13 to 15, he's got another argument about why we should appreciate all that we have in Jesus. Because this new life, he says, can only be offered because of the way Christ dealt with sin and because of the way he dealt with the devil. So this double effect of Christ's work on the cross. Notice what verses 13 to 15 say. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice the decisive finality of Jesus' work here, that we have complete freedom because of what Jesus achieved through his death and then, of course, his resurrection that followed. What is it that this charge of legal indebtedness, what is it that's being cancelled for us? Well, the argument that Paul is making is that every human that has ever lived needs to live according to God's perfect law, that he designed us to be in relationship with him. He has given us his word. We're meant to live in response to it, to satisfy his demands only. And yet we all fail miserably. The Bible calls it sin, of course, that we fall short. We don't make his standards. We can't meet what he requires. And as a result, we have this debt before God of all our unforgiven sin. And we can't do anything about it. There's nothing we can do to cancel that debt. So so often people want to work hard, do lots of good things, and maybe that will you know, even up the scales and God will somehow cancel our debt before him. But the Bible says over and over, it just simply cannot happen. Sinners cannot please a holy God. And so we've got a debt before God, but Christ enters the scene and he can instantaneously cancel it at that moment he dies on the cross. That cancellation language there is beautiful in the original Greek. It says that Jesus literally blotted out our sin. He has taken it away completely. 
wiped it away. And that's through simply his redeeming work on the cross. The curse of the law has been dealt with. Because in Jesus, all of God's wrath that should be poured out on us is poured out on him and he exhausts it totally. There's nothing left over. There's no extra payment that needs to be made by us. All that is necessary has been done in Christ. And so there's our debt of our sin before God. But secondly, notice there's liberation from power's authorities in verse 15. That also has been decisively accomplished. What are these powers and authorities? He's talking about the devil and his demons, his minions, if you like, these powers in the heavenly realms that are reigned against God, evil forces. The wonderful thing about this, and sometimes we miss this, is that we are often so aware and focused on our sin and its need to be paid for. But this second part of the equation is so important, or else we have Satan, our accuser, just able to come back to us again and again, as it were, whisper in our ear, well, yes, you may have been forgiven by Jesus, but look what you did yesterday. And so you're not good enough. God can't let you into his heaven because, well, Jesus may have done that, but what about the other things that keep happening in your life? Well, here we're told that not only has our sin been dealt with, but Satan has been dealt with. Jesus has defeated him once and for all. And I think when we look at the cross, we find that difficult to believe. Certainly our world does. They look at the cross and they see a weak man. Surely this is humiliation. He's a victim. He's being nailed by the Romans. This is not victory. This is not power. This is weakness before people. How can this defeat all the forces of the heavenly realm that stand against God? But Paul argues, no, that is what's happening. What we actually see when we see Jesus dying on the cross is the king being crowned. This is his crowning moment of power. It's an unexpected way that he does things, but as he bears the sin of the world and he conquers death on our behalf, he also defeats the devil. And so all those things that stand against us are dealt a hammer blow at that one point as Christ dies. See, Paul uses this language of a public spectacle. He talks about them being embarrassed, as it were, uh, Satan and his um, demons. Jesus makes a public spectacle of them at the cross. What has he got in mind as he uses that kind of language? It's very strong language. What he's picturing is a triumphal procession. Paul saw lots of these. The Roman Empire saw over 350 of these, at least that have been recorded. These were massive, lavish parades conducted in Rome to celebrate great victories in significant military campaigns. Now, these were major cultural events. They were filled with valiant soldiers, spoils of war. It was the most theatrical pomp Rome could muster. The idea was if, that you were the winning general and you'd gone off and defeated some far-flung enemy of Rome, then you would come back and you would have your day where everyone would acknowledge your achievement. And so the winning general would be on a chariot and he'd be marched right through the city and trailing behind him would be some of his leading soldiers that had helped him win victory. Behind them would be the spoils of anything that was worthy they'd carried back from that far-flung country. And at the very back of the queue was those who had been defeated. They'd usually kill most of the people, of course, but they'd select the leader and some key people in the opposition and bring them back in chains and march them down the street. And what was their purpose? Well, their purpose was to give glory to the general up front 
Look how magnificent he and his forces were. Look at these people that were our enemies, now in chains. Look how pathetic they are, totally smashed under the Roman Empire. Well, this is what happened time and time again. There's a massive arch in Rome. If you go, you can walk through, as I have, called the Arch of Titus. It was for General Titus, and he was the guy that levelled Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, the Jews rebelled from AD 66. It took the Romans four years to do the job, but he got there and he didn't leave one brick on top of another. He killed every man, woman and child that he could. And he got to march back through Rome. I am Titus. He had an arch built and everyone said, Hail the great Titus. It's like a godlike moment where they're given such glory and acclaim. Well, it's that kind of picture that Paul has got in mind when he says... Jesus, your saviour, as he hangs dying on the cross, has made a public spectacle of any enemy of God that would stand against him. They have been utterly embarrassed. They are pathetic. They are being dragged in chains before this one who is king over all things. It's a majestic picture of Christ's power and what he achieves at the cross. And you've got to ask yourself, if I am being diverted at any point in my life, if I'm somehow wanting to add something to Jesus, I'm going off into some new age nonsense or whatever it might be, I may as well put myself at the back of the queue in chains as a pathetic person that's been brought along as a prisoner of those that have now been defeated by Christ. Why take side with Satan, who is the, lo- the loser in the battle? Why not give the glory to the rightful one, Christ, who laid down his life that you might join in with an inheritance that cannot be lost? You see, we started with the question tonight, How can Christians stand firm in their faith? How can we keep going for the long haul? The first thing is this. You need to continue as you started. Did you start in repentance and faith? Then continue in repentance and faith for the rest of your life. You don't move on to anything else. There's no higher knowledge, no greater thing, no mountain to climb for you. Just keep trusting in Jesus who has done everything. That is where we need to stand firm. But secondly, we've got to fully grasp what we have in Christ. The only reason that we're going to be tempted to go away to some hollow philosophy, some deception, is we don't realise we've got the genuine article in Jesus. Why run to something else if it's an empty, hollow fake? If when we've got the real thing in Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, experts in the world now say that of all the great art pieces that are floating around the world and being sold for astronomical amounts, only 50% of them are the genuine article. 50% of what people are buying are forgeries. They are fakes. There's a recent example just this past month where one person was duped into buying a fake Franz Hals, a Dutch painter. He paid 8.5 million pounds for this painting and then learned a little bit later that it's probably worth about $8.50. It's got to be gutting at that point, hasn't it? Don't be deceived spiritually. Don't wake up one morning discovering you've bought a fake, that you've followed nonsense when you've been offered the king of kings in Christ. Through Jesus, you have full forgiveness, full and free. Through him and his death on the cross, he has defeated sin on your behalf and its consequence of death so that you have eternal life. He's defeated the great accuser, Satan, You can no longer point the finger at you because Jesus will say, no, he or she is mine. And more than that, we need to hold on, therefore, to him. We need to stand firm on the gospel of grace. 
Don't let anyone distract you or divert you. Stay with Jesus. He's won the victory already. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him we have received every spiritual blessing, that we have complete fullness in Christ, the one who has defeated sin and its consequence of death, who has defeated the devil, who has granted us freedom, new life and relationship with you, eternal life to come, and wonderful hope as we live for you now. Lord, help us to grasp what we have in Christ and to hold firmly to him. For we ask it in his name. Amen.